what up Cavs Nation? I'm your host Ethan Sands and I'm back with another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. What up Chris? What's going on Ethan? How are you man? Doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I just got back from the Detroit Red Wings hockey game. It was a lot of fun. Man, as Chance the Rapper would say, let's do that hockey. (laughs) (laughs) I love hockey, man. And being inside an arena for a hockey game, it's a different kind of energy. I really, really enjoy it, especially in hockey town. Yeah, I'm not a big hockey guy, but I can respect it. I can respect (laughs) it. But today, Chris, we have a Hey Chris episode. I know it's a little bit later in the week than usual, but obviously we want to give the fans what they want, and they got a lot of questions for you today, my boy. Okay, let's see it. All right. So, first one. Hey Chris, do you really think the Cavs record without Garland last year, 11-1, and and the streak without him this year, 14-4, and is just a coincidence? Can the Cavs ever be at their best defensively in the playoffs where matchups get exposed and exploited with the two guards playing 35 plus minutes together? I mean, look, that's a a legitimate question. And and I think we've talked about this a lot throughout the course of this podcast, Ethan. I think the belief is inside this organization, number one, the offensive ceiling of those two guys together, Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland, allows for the Cavs to feel good about the possibility of what it means when those two guys are together defensively because they feel like they're going to gain more on the offensive end than they're going to give up on the defensive end, especially because if there's a place where it can work with two small guards in the backcourt, both of those guys with defensive liabilities, both of those guys with physical limitations at that end of the floor, if there's a place where it's going to work, work well enough for the team to be successful, let's put it that way, It's here in Cleveland, surrounded by Evan Mobley and Jared Allen protecting those guys. Now, does that mean that Darius Garland is an all-defensive type player? No. Same thing when it comes to Donovan Mitchell. But when you have the protection of two all-defensive players behind them, Evan Mobley and Jared Allen cover up a lot of weaknesses. Evan Mobley and Jared Allen provide a lot of rim protection, paint protection, and with the way that the Cavs are currently constructed... I think the belief is, with those two guys out there, it makes Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland doable. And I also think it's fair to point out that for all of these perceptions about Darius and Donovan together and the limitations that they have, and some of those things can get exposed in a seven-game series, especially against the wrong opponent. I do think we have to point out that just because there is this perception out there, it's not really backed up by enough data for the Cavs to be concerned about it or for the Cavs to consider any kind of significant change or anything along those lines. If the data pointed to those guys just not functioning well together on the offensive end of the floor and getting completely shredded on the defensive end, then I think that would be one thing. But that's not what the data shows. With both of those guys on the floor, Ethan, the Cavs have a 107 defensive rating. If you were to translate that over the course of the entire season, that would either be the number one or number two ranked defense in the league. So yeah, there are things to be concerned about. But this year... So far, with them on the court together, the Cavs are functioning just fine defensively. I think we also have to point out that when 
you see the elevated numbers for Donovan or Darius when one or the other is out. It usually is because the Cavs are in need of another scoring option or increase in scoring from those guys because obviously Donovan and Darius are one and two on the stat sheet for when it comes to points per game for the Cavs. And once one of them are out, you look at someone else to elevate their game and increase what they bring on the offensive end. And most of the time, they are tasked with doing so. I think we also say this too, Ethan. This is their team, okay? This is their core four. The trade deadline has passed. There is nothing that the Cavs can do about it. So let's let this play out. Let's see what happens in a first-round playoff series before we start talking about Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland can't work together. Maybe that's true. Maybe they run into the Miami Heat in the first round of the playoffs and Tyler Hero and Jimmy Butler and Terry Rozier and all those guys expose the weaknesses of the tiny backcourt of the Cavs. But right now, this is what they have. And they're the second best team in the Eastern Conference. And with Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell on the floor together, they're outscoring opponents by eight points per 100 possessions. It's not the best in the NBA in terms of duos, but it's up there with the best duos in the league. So these guys can function together. We have seen it. Let's see if it works in the playoffs with a better starting small forward, with more shooting around them, with more floor spacing, with more offensive versatility, the things that they didn't have last year against the New York Knicks. And if it fails in the first round playoff series, then I think we have long, hard conversations about the possibility of breaking up Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. But I just don't understand why we're doing that right now, because nothing can happen on February 29th. The trade deadline has passed. Very true. All right. Next question. Hey, Chris, when fans talk about the rebounding woes of the Cavs, are they forgetting about the return of Tristan Thompson? He can provide the toughness and rebounding prowess that the Cavs are missing, and he wouldn't upset JB's rotation. Well, one, I think he would upset JB's rotation because (laughs) he's not going to be in that nine-man rotation that JB is comfortable with. But I do want to remind fans that Tristan Thompson is eligible to return on March 16th at Houston against the Rockets during this month, and his 25-game suspension will be up, and obviously the Cavs would be more than happy to have him back just as a bench presence, if nothing more. Chris, can you go into a little bit more depth on what Tristan Thompson can bring on the rebounding front for the Cavs. Well, obviously, he brings a level of toughness, tenacity. He is one of the premier offensive rebounders, has been throughout the course of his entire career. He brings a lot of playoff know-how and experience, basketball IQ. But I think you hit on it, Ethan, and I think you're right. Tristan Thompson, when he comes back and moving forward for the remainder of the season, when this team is fully healthy or close to full strength, he is going to be a situational player. In a situation like last night against the Chicago Bulls, when they were going with Vucevic and Drummond, and Jared Allen and Evan Mobley and the rest of the Cavs were just getting obliterated on the glass, that probably would have been a situation where J.B. Bickerstaff would have fired that Tristan Thompson bullet just to put more of a body on Drummond, to put a little bit more strength out there. Because yeah, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, they aren't as powerful 
they aren't as physically developed as somebody like Tristan Thompson, who has been doing it at a high level for a number of years. And I think the Cavs having that piece just to go to that option off the bench is valuable, but it comes with the understanding that Tristan's not going to play every single night. It might be 12 minutes one night in one specific matchup and then zero for the remainder of the week or something along those lines. In saying all of that, I think we have to point this out. The Cavs are top 10 in the NBA in defensive rebounding percentage. What happened against the Chicago Bulls, that's an anomaly. What happened against the New York Knicks earlier this season, again, an anomaly. There are certain teams, no doubt, that can take advantage of the Cavs not having the biggest, strongest, most physical front court in the NBA, okay? There are certain teams that provide matchup problems for the Cavs when it comes to finishing defensive possessions and grabbing rebounds and keeping opponents off the offensive glass. But it has not been a season-long problem. They are top 10 in the NBA in defensive rebound percentage. That is a very, very good place to be. It's quite different from where they were last year when they were in the bottom 10 in the league. All right, Chris. The next question is from Howard in Lyndhurst. He says, it was nice to see the Cavs run an elevator screen for Garland (laughs) with Mobley and Allen. It worked perfectly as the Chicago defenders got caught and Garland nailed an open three for the top of the key. My question is, is are the Cavs putting in some new actions? What opportunities are there for practices given the schedule? Of course, they're always putting in new stuff. They're always looking at how they can better themselves and what sets they can introduce and try and work on behind the scenes. And I got news for you. When the Cavs get into the postseason, there's going to be other stuff that they're going to introduce that they've had in their back pocket. It's just about when is the right time to do that, When does the schedule allow for practices? Do you have the kinds of players with the skill set to do those kinds of things? But it all comes back to this, Ethan. It all comes back to this idea of the Cavs trying to diversify their offense as much as possible. And I think that's one critical difference of this year's Cavs team and last year's Cavs team. They have different pathways to success on the offensive end. Last year, it was so pick and roll heavy. And they didn't have the opportunity to just dump the ball to Evan Mobley or Jared Allen and say, create something. Because both those players have evolved over the last year. Both those players are different this year than they were a year ago. They're able to run some movement-based stuff. Darius Garland seems more and more comfortable playing off the ball as he gets more experience with that, as he gets more repetitions with that. Max Struess provides a movement element on offense that they didn't have last year. Same thing with Sam Merrill. So there are just different things that they're able to do on the offensive end and have success with on the offensive end based on the personnel changes that they made coming into this year. And one of those things is just whatever set makes the most sense given the five-man lineup that is out there. And that doesn't mean that they're always going to go away from pick and roll. That's still going to be part of this offensive tack as well. But it's pick and roll, it's movement-based stuff, pin downs, floppy, hammers, elevators, double drags, And then you're talking about some stuff with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley at the elbow with some DHO. So it's just that, to me, can benefit this team greatly going into a seven-game series because they just 
Last year against the Knicks, they just had no counter based on the personnel that they had for the defensive schemes that the Knicks were using to completely eliminate the Cavs' high pick-and-roll attack, or neutralize the Cavs' high pick-and-roll attack, I should say. Yeah, Chris, and I mean, obviously, you don't show your entire hand until you get to crunch time, and we've seen that with the Bucks and them not really showing the pick-and-roll at all as much as we all expected them to, but I can tell you for sure, when it comes down to the playoffs and they're in a seven-game series against a team that might be able to slow down Damian Lillard or Giannis Antetokounmpo, they're going to do everything they can to free one of those two guys up on the offensive end. We'll just have to see what the Cavs are able to pull out of their sleeves for tricks and things that they've been working on that we haven't seen yet. And Ethan, for all the criticisms that J.B. Bickerstaff gets and has gotten throughout his time as the coach, the Cavs run some pretty good stuff offensively. They run some pretty fun stuff offensively. Just a couple of nights ago, they ran inverted pick and roll, Darius Garland screening for Evan Mobley as opposed to Evan Mobley screening for Darius. That was different, that was fun, and it was successful. They run some fake stuff when it comes to Max Drews or Sam Merrill, that being involved with Donovan Mitchell. So let's not sit here and pretend that the Cavs don't have some fun stuff offensively. Let's not sit here and pretend that they don't run an offense that could theoretically be more successful in a seven-game playoff series than it was a year ago. All right, Chris. Next question from Andy in North Olmsted. He says, hey, Chris. Why has JB gotten away from hardly using that successful rotation of Donovan Mitchell, Max Struess, Isaac Okoro, Dean Wade, and Jared Allen, plus not using Sam Merrill at all? Is JB reverting back to giving his starters heavy minutes and not trusting his depth? Well, we touched on this a little bit last night, Ethan, on the podcast, and I'm working on a piece for Cleveland.com just based on this topic. And I think the important thing that that I keep pointing to is this. Every addition to the rotation is going to come at the expense of somebody else. So adding minutes for Dean Wade, adding minutes for Sam Merrill, that means taking some away. Because there aren't available minutes just waiting for them the way that it was over that six-week stretch when Darius Garland and Evan Mobley weren't out there. You had a bunch of minutes that you had to fill. Right now... You're trying to find a way to make everybody happy, to make the rotations make sense, and try and give everybody time that deserves it or that has earned it to this point. But what are you going to do in terms of subtraction to get Sam Merrill those minutes or Dean Wade those minutes? That's what becomes so complicated. And when it comes to that five-man lineup, yeah, it was super successful. There's no doubt about it. I think there are going to be pockets throughout the course of a game where J.B. Bickerstaff is going to get back to it. But here's the thing. If you look at the way that these games have played out, at the seven-minute mark of the first quarter, Evan Mobley and Darius Garland go to the bench, and in come Karis LeVert, usually, and Dean Wade. And then around the three-minute mark of the first quarter, Donovan Mitchell and Jared Allen go to the bench. They take their rest. And then Evan Mobley and Darius Garland come back in. And then George Niang usually accompanies them. And then it's like, okay, how are we going to continue to mix and match when we want to have Darius Garland and Evan Mobley paired up, when we want to have Donovan Mitchell and Jared Allen paired up, when we want to find enough minutes for Max Struess alongside Donovan Mitchell because that 
Tusum has been absolutely fantastic. It's just not as simple as people are making it seem. Because everybody that deserves to play, everybody that has earned minutes, can't when you're talking about 240 total minutes to allocate. And when you're talking about the starters getting big minutes most nights, because that's something that has been successful for the Cavs. And that's something that I think will continue to be successful for the Cavs. And that doesn't mean running Donovan Mitchell into the ground every single night. It doesn't mean running Jared Allen into the ground every single night. But these guys are going to get somewhere between 32 and 38 minutes because that's the role that they have on this particular team. So it just becomes more difficult when you have Evan Mobley and Darius Garland back in the mix, and both those guys are high-minute players, and they're going to take somewhere between 32 and 36, and the minutes that were available over that six-week stretch are not available right now unless you completely cut somebody from the rotation. And I just don't think that's something that J.B. Bickerstaff wants to do right now at the end of February because he still has all of March to go. And a big part of what makes a successful coach in the NBA and a big part of what the coach's responsibility is in the NBA is managing personalities. Yeah, and we talked about that on the most recent podcast before this one that'll air tomorrow about how just managing emotions is a big thing when it comes to being a coach. But I also think J.B. Bickerstaff, and we can agree on this, that the Cavs are no longer trying to chase wins. They're just trying to put up the best lineups and rotations in preparation for the play-in or the playoffs, depending on how these last two months shake out. My thing is, is during these different games where they are playing lesser opponents, in the last couple of weeks, I would have liked them to try and do more experimentation and see if the lineups that were working before the All-Star break were still successful. But that might just be me, and that might also have something to do with what I said in yesterday's podcast. But I do think that the Cavs are creating a rotation that not only they, but Jamie Bickerstaff is not only getting used to, but also getting comfortable with. And that's important for a team that has had a lot of ups and downs throughout this season and has to figure out who they're going to be playing alongside and figuring out what they like and things of that nature. Yeah, and to that point, you're right. They're not chasing wins per se, but seating matters and Milwaukee's not going anywhere, okay? And the Cavs being in the number two spot, depending on how the rest of the stuff in the Eastern Conference shakes out, Ethan, it could end up being the difference between them going on an extended playoff run or them being one and done. I agree, but they also have to be careful and they have to be mindful of Eastern Conference seating. Because if they start falling too far back and all of a sudden they're in that 4-5 slot and they're on the same side of the bracket with Boston, that's not necessarily a place that they want to be. If they start falling too far and they're in that 4-5 slot and it sets up a first-round playoff matchup with the Miami Heat, or they fall to three and it sets up a first-round playoff matchup with the 76ers who are probably going to get Joel Embiid back at some point in time. That's not the ideal situation either. So it's just something that they have to be mindful of because Milwaukee's right there, right on their heels. So this question comes about the national media a little bit. This person asks, 
Are the Cavs struggling to stay focused until the playoffs? Every NBA analyst I hear says they can't respect the Cavs after last year's series against the Knicks. They have to prove themselves in the playoffs. Are the Cavs looking ahead a little bit? No, I don't think so. I I, I don't know. Again, they haven't played to the same dominant level that they were playing at over that six-week stretch. But the way that they were playing over that six-week stretch, that didn't feel sustainable. That was a level of dominance that isn't often shown throughout the NBA. And it certainly, if it does happen for a week or two weeks, it doesn't usually stretch as long as it did for the Cavs. And during that stretch, we also have to point out that they took advantage of a very, very favorable schedule. There are people inside the organization that don't like when that is brought up, but that was a reality of them going on that run that they did. They beat up on Washington. They took advantage of San Antonio. Those caliber teams, those were the ones that were on that schedule during that stretch. So it allowed them to play with a little bit more freedom. It allowed them to flex their muscles a little bit. It allowed them to lean into their talent and into their depth. It's a lot harder when you're playing against Luka Doncic, Kyrie Irving, and the Dallas Mavericks. It's a lot harder when you play the first two games out of All-Star break without Donovan Mitchell, and who knows what his availability is going to be for Friday night against Detroit because he popped up on the injury report with knee soreness, and he's listed as questionable. So I think it's my way of saying that just like there were circumstances attached to them being as dominant as they were over those six weeks where they were playing such high-level basketball and they stormed up to the top of the Eastern Conference, near the top of the Eastern Conference, there are circumstances attached to the way that they've played since the All-Star break as well. Yeah, and I mean, we touched on it earlier in this podcast. The Cavs are not only trying to secure their spot in the playoffs because they know that a higher seeding poses for a better matchup for them in the first round, but... Also, confidence is a big thing. If you are second in the Eastern Conference and you are separated by seventh in the Eastern Conference by just five games, you know that everybody is on your tail. It's something that the Cavs aren't taking note of, so they can't look too far ahead, but they also have to be wary of the present. But I think that's a good time for us to take a little bit of a break. But I got to put our subscribers on to something new in the meantime. For our listeners, if you like food and drinks, and who doesn't, Cleveland.com is breaking new ground with our lively new podcast about dining and drinking in the greater Cleveland area. The hosts talk about the latest foodie happenings, joined by the most in-the-know experts in town. It's called Dine, Drink, CLE. And you can find it anywhere you download podcasts. Give it a listen, quench your thirst, and feed that appetite. When we come back to the Wine and Gold Talk podcast, we're going to continue with this episode of Hey Chris. I know you guys got more questions, and we're going to get to as many as possible. But before then, become a Cavs insider and interact with me and Chris by subscribing to Subtext. Subtext is where you can drop these questions that will be answered on our weekly podcast and our weekly episodes of Hey Chris. To do so, sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy, but we can tell you 
that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from me and Chris. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Chris, we're going to get right back into these questions because, man, like I said to start this podcast, there are a lot after what's been going on with the Cavs, and I'm trying to get to as many as possible. So this next one is from Matt in Los Angeles. He says, hey, Chris, is there any buyout candidate still sitting on their couch that might be a good depth piece at a bargain price? Maybe just for a possible Dante Jones three minutes of playoff fame moment. (laughs) I know we talked about the trade deadline is over and has passed. We talk about how difficult the depth and rotations have been for J.B. Bickerstaff already. I don't know if adding another player to the mix would be helpful, but I also know that JB has done everything he can (laughs) to try and figure this depth chart out and this lineup and rotation out. But because of having so many injuries throughout the season, he got to see more of those players. And that also equates to the fans getting to see more of those players. Like if Darius Garland and Evan Mobley don't go out, you guys don't see as much as Dean Wade, Isaac Okoro, and Sam Merrill this season, and maybe aren't bringing these questions up as much. But now that we know that Sam Merrill, Dean Wade, Isaac Okoro have something to bring to the table for this team, I think it brings up these questions. But I don't think there's a guy on the buyout market that I immediately go, yeah, he's a Cavs fit. Do you, Chris? Well, I think it comes down to this too, Ethan. Where are the weak points on this roster? Where could they stand to improve or add more depth? The only ones that stand out to me, power forward, because Niang's been hit and miss. At times recently, he's been unplayable. He didn't play in the second half or either overtime period against Chicago because he wasn't making shots and he wasn't helping him on the defensive end of the floor and he wasn't providing enough offense otherwise apart from making shots. And then Dean Wade, we've seen it. He can be up and down when it comes to production. His confidence can be up and down. And I just think if you're looking at a spot where maybe possibly you want another insurance policy. That's one that stands out, but I just don't know how desperate the Cavs have to be. And this is a very delicate situation because anybody who comes in here, Ethan, has to understand their role completely and has to accept their role completely. And they have to be willing to sign with this team and say, well, I've got an opportunity to get back to the playoffs. I've got an opportunity to maybe possibly chase an Eastern Conference Finals appearance or further than that. However they view the Cavs, I don't know what the view of the Cavs is by said players. In saying that, buyout market is weak to begin with. Spencer Dinwiddie was one of the top guys that was bought out He went to the Lakers. He has been a complete and utter disaster for a majority of his time with L.A. So these guys get bought out for a reason. These guys become available for a reason. And even Danny Green last year, when he came here in a buyout, theoretically, the Cavs needed a little bit more of what Danny Green brought to the table. The championship experience, the floor spacing, the three-point shooting. J.B. Bickerstaff rarely played him. 
Now, Denny was coming back from an injury, but there's built-in trust that Dean Wade and George Niang have that ex-player who would come in the buyout certainly don't. And I don't know that there's enough time for some player to come in and build that trust with JB or show that he could be trusted in some kind of situation if the playoffs arise. So I just find it hard to believe that there's anybody out there on the open market that can come here and play any kind of meaningful minutes whatsoever. If they're going to add somebody on the buyout market, and again, I've been told that they're in no rush to do that. They're exploring all their options. They're weighing everything that goes into it. It's an insurance policy type player that gives them a 12th, 13th man that they would be more willing to go to than somebody the caliber of Damian Jones or Isaiah Mobley or whoever else you want to throw out there that is at the end of this bench. All right, Chris, moving on to the next question. What is the front office's role in determining rotation? Is it all on JB? Do they give game-by-game suggestions? Do you see it as a problem? Do I see what is a problem? I think that's a great question on your part because I don't know. (laughs) Is the front office's role in determining the rotation a problem? Less or so, or should be more? (laughs) If the front office had more of a role in determining the rotation, Craig Porter Jr. would be in it, and Dean Wade would probably be getting more minutes as well. Because those are two guys that this front office, they've invested in. And the same thing when it goes to Sam Merrill. Those are all guys that this front office has invested in. They've given all of those guys standard NBA contracts, because they believe in them. And yes, part of it is they believe in them and the role that they're going to have in the future. But I know for a fact, there have been times throughout the course of this year that members of the front office have wanted to see more of Craig Porter Jr. in the rotation. I know for a fact that members of the front office wanted to see Sam Merrill when he was collecting DNPs at the beginning of the year because they believed he was an offensive weapon that could raise the ceiling for this team. So I don't think they have a significant say in what JB does with his rotations. I don't think they have a significant say in what combinations JB uses throughout the course of the game. Obviously, there are conversations between the front office and the coaching staff constantly. There are numbers that are given to the coaching staff by members of the front office, data that kind of helps them. But this is something that, that JB and his coaches study at a high level. Lineups, combinations, two-man, three-man, four-man, five-man. And I just think it's something that all of those guys are still working through. And I just don't think it's a situation where the front office comes and says, you need to play this guy more. They would give a suggestion and say, the data says this, and maybe it would be wise to think about this possibility. But there's no decree from the front office saying, play Dean Wade more or else. Play Craig Porter Jr. more or else. Right. And I mean, once again, it is JB's lineup. And although they do have a lot of say, if something is working, they're not going to push back on it too heavily. The other thing is this too, Ethan. I think this is important to note. Part of the regular season for every team in the NBA is experimentation. And sometimes experiments that you try when it comes to various lineups or various rotations, sometimes they're extremely successful and sometimes they fail. I think JB has a relatively good understanding of some of the five-man lineups and some of the two-man combinations that really, really work. And he can always go to those. 
I think he's trying to find new ones that are different now because Darius and Evan are back. So who fits best alongside that duo? You know what I mean? And I think he wants to see, okay, what does it look like with George Niang as the power forward next to Evan Mobley? Okay, what does it look like with Dean Wade as the power forward next to Evan Mobley? What does it look like with Karis LeVert as the two next to Darius Garland? Okay, now what does it look like with Max Struess as the two next to Darius Garland? Okay, now what does it look like with Isaac Okoro as the two next to Darius Garland? And the only way that you get those answers is by actually using some of those different lineups. Some of them are going to work. Some of them aren't going to work. That's just the nature of this. Chris, we've made it to the end. This is the final two-part question from Brandon in Charlotte, North Carolina. The first one is do y'all think Okoro should get more run? He's been a stud lately on both sides of the ball. For me, Chris, I would like to see more of either Isaac Okoro or Dean Wade. So that means switching minutes or things of that nature, depending on matchup. And that's where I'm going with this. It depends on the matchup for me. Because like the Detroit Pistons, we've seen Dean Wade be able to guard Cade Cunningham at length. So I would want to see him more in Friday's game. More than who? See, that's what it comes down to. It does, yep. Here's the thing. I will admit, Sam Merrill should be playing more. Dean Wade should be playing more. If only it was that simple, right? Because if those guys are going to play more, then two other guys are going to play less. So who is it that plays less? For the Detroit Pistons games that I was talking about, if Donovan's out, let's say if Donovan's sure, out, that becomes easy. then it becomes easy. Dean Wade slides into the starting lineup. No, I'm talking about when this team is close to full strength, close to fully healthy. When the nine guys are all healthy and available, how do you do it? And then I think it depends in this situation. Let's stick with the Detroit Pistons matchup. It depends on if Donovan or Darius is having an off night or an on night. And if both of them are having an on night offensively, then I think you stick with it. But if one of the other is having an off night offensively, then I think you switch some of their minutes on to Dean Wade to increase the defensive mindset against Cade Cunningham because in most aspects for the Detroit Pistons, he's their entire offense. You are out of your damn mind if you think trimming Darius Garland's minutes is the answer. You're out of your mind. I think it depends because, like, we talk about this a lot this year. If they are not being successful on the offensive end to an extent and giving up more on the defensive end, then it's not worth what they're giving up on the defensive end. Hasn't that been the the barometer for this entire season? Like with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, if they're giving up too much on the offensive end than they are on the defensive end, then something needs to switch. Also, Darius Garland doesn't correlate with Dean Wade at all. Dean Wade's a power forward. So how does that help get Dean Wade minutes? What I'm saying is because Dean Wade would be guarding their point guard. These are very, very delicate decisions that every head coach needs to make when it comes to his lineups, when it comes to his rotations, when it comes to minute allocation. And you're telling me that you're going to take one of the core four members of this group who needs to find his rhythm who needs reps, who needs more time on the court with different guys, including Donovan Mitchell, to build that chemistry, to build that camaraderie. You're telling me that you're going to cut his minutes significantly to make way for Dean Wade or or Sam Merrill? That, to me, is a non-starter. 
if we want to have a conversation about Karis LeVert playing a little bit less, Isaac Okoro playing a little bit less, okay, that's kind of the pathway. But Darius Garland's going to get 32 to 38 minutes a night. That's happening. Donovan Mitchell's going to get 32 to 38 minutes a night. That's happening. Jared Allen, same thing. Max Drew, same thing. Evan Mobley, same thing. And I don't disagree with that. I was talking more so just based on the Detroit Pistons matchup. That That's the only matchup that I was referring to. Not on a nightly basis, just that lineup. But I think we got away from Brandon's question about if Isaac Okoro should be playing more. What do you think about his productivity on the offensive and defensive end as of late? How do you do it? I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. I'm sorry. I think it's really, really easy for people to say, JB's rotations suck. X player should be playing more minutes. But again, every decision comes at the expense of someone or something. So if you want Isaac Okoro to get more than 24 minutes or so, who gets less? How do they make that happen? You're going to take minutes from Max Struess? Going to take minutes from Donovan Mitchell? Going to take minutes from Karis LeVert? What are you doing to get Isaac Okoro more minutes? And is there enough of a benefit that you're gaining from doing that? See, if somebody was playing so bad that it would just be easy to pull them out of the rotation, but that's not really the case, unless you're talking about George Niang and this mini funk that he's in, but that doesn't tie back to Isaac Okoro, that ties back to Dean Wade. The guys that Isaac Okoro is battling for minutes with, Karis LeVert, Donovan Mitchell, to a lesser extent, Darius Garland, and Max Struess. So which guy loses minutes to give Isaac more? Who is it? I think it depends on the night. I think it depends on the night. Like we've said all season long, it depends on the matchup. It depends on who's playing well. It depends on what they got going and what they don't. Here's the thing. Not everybody on this team is going to play 32 minutes a night. I'm sorry. It's not not possible. So, like, we want to give more minutes to Sam Merrill. And we want to give more minutes to Isaac Okoro. And we want to give more minutes to Dean Wade. And we want to give more minutes to Craig Porter Jr. That's not possible. We got to live in reality here. There are 240 total minutes throughout the course of the game. Well, we don't have to worry about Craig for a little bit because he's on assignment for the G League. But I know what you're talking about. The second part of Brandon's question... (laughs) And the last question of the podcast... What is life like as a team beat reporter? Stresses of travel, coping with not being able to see your family a lot, and how to professionally handle a player that confronts you for saying something about them or asking a question they didn't like. Can you do me a favor? Can you bookmark this question and remember (laughs) it and make a note and do it for the next Hey Chris? Because we have already gone so long with this version of Hey Chris, and I think I don't want to shortchange this one because this is a terrific question and it would take a lot to get through all of it. So I think we want to save that Hey Chris question for the next edition of Hey Chris on the Wine and Gold Talk podcast because I don't want to shortchange it. Alrighty. And if Chris says we're done, then we're done. So (laughs) that'll wrap up today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast and this week's rendition of Hey Chris. But remember to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and me by subscribing to Subtext. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. And you don't like it? That's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy, but we can tell you 
that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from me and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all be safe. We out.